This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Guys ready to study the Word this morning? All right. Well, this morning we're going to continue our teaching series in hard questions, and we've looked at some difficult questions over the last couple of weeks. We saw in week one how we can really trust the Bible. Last week we asked the question, Did is Jesus really God? And the scriptural evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of that, and we actually laid the groundwork and showed how uh, the deity of Jesus, understanding that God came to earth in human form, and the Son laid aside His crown and, and entered into our world as the whole basis of the Christian faith. And today we're going to ask the question, do good people really go to heaven? Good people go to heaven, bad people don't, right? That's the American mantra. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, Christian Smith, who is a very renowned sociologist at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, he and his team uh, conducted a study surveying over 3,000 different teams in the United States of America. Now, this research is about 10 years old, but it still holds true today. And what he and his team found is that the faith held and described by most adolescents came down to something the researchers identified as moralistic therapeutic deism. And as described by Smith and his team, moralistic therapeutic deism consists of beliefs like these, five of them. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven, bad people don't. It makes sense, right? That's fair, right? Well, actually, when you really start thinking about it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And yet men and women, children, everywhere, even very smart and educated people are banking their entire eternal destiny on this myth. Have you ever thought it through? I want to ask you that personal question this morning. Have you ever thought that question through? Do good people really go to heaven? Well, this morning, we're going to think it through, and we're going to look at a lot of Scripture and, uh, and point you towards a good answer to this question from the Scriptures. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. Whether you have been in the church for a while, whether you would identify as a Christian, or whether you're still searching these things out and you're asking a lot of questions, regardless of where we're coming from, I've said this before, there is equal standing at the foot of the cross and there's equal standing before the throne room of God. And so not a single one of us should uh, just toss this aside and say, well, well, this message isn't for me. See, just like the believers, uh, the, the professing Christians in Pakistan, today could be a question that we're asking, and you're thinking this doesn't apply to me, but as we go through this, you're going to find that it might. Because it's where your heart is. And you'll recognize that I've never really believed the true gospel before. And I may be banking my eternal destiny on a question or a reality that I've made in my mind that's really founded upon a myth. 
it doesn't really make any sense at all. Here's why. Number one, appeal to logic. Appeal to logic. And this is where you'll pick up with your notes. Let's talk about a couple of problems with this theory. Now, we can't exhaust this topic this morning, but I'm going to give you a lot of stuff to think about from the scriptures as well as to think about in our minds. Appealing to logic. Number one, there's no consistent definition of what good is. I mean, if we say that good people go to heaven, who gets to make the definitions? Who gets to uh, define the parameters? Because you see, today, religions all around the world have different definitions of good. There is no universal consensus regarding every single moral issue. And, and, and I know we've already talked about this this morning in the, in the framework of the Middle East and thinking about life there. And, and we know this, that, that there are religions in the world who are doing very atrocious things in the name of God and then passing those off as good all throughout human history, whether it's uh, aversions of our own faith or Muslims or some fringe group, we have seen people do, do some very harmful things in the name of religion or the name of God, define those things good and say, I'm doing these things because I'm earning favor with my deity. And, and it's, it can be different and when you go to different hemispheres, and different time zones. And so one of the problems is there's no consistent definition of what good actually is. Number two, there is no grading scale to determine where you stand. And Now think about this. If this is the plan of God for human beings on earth, for their spiritual destinies, that you're just supposed to be good as you live here on earth, and it's that important, and we're going to base our entire eternal spirit upon this truth claim, then why don't we have a listed scale? If it's that important, then why is there silence on that issue? Is there a different scale for every generation? Because things that I used to think were really good may not be so good anymore. And some things I thought were really wrong as a society we're now saying are very right. I mean, you can even take, I know this is a very sensitive issue, but think about racial issues in America. If you just rewind back 60, 70 years ago, during the civil rights movement, or if you go back to the 1800s, living in a very white America, there were a lot of professing Christians who held very racist beliefs and very segregationist beliefs, and the very foundation of their belief system, they appealed to the Scriptures. They actually invoked the name of God over that. Now today, as a society, collectively, we would repudiate that, and we would reject that. But where's the scale? I mean, even as a society, the scale is different today. We see racial issues very differently today than we did 150 years ago, no matter what we may see happening in the media today. And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to minimize some of the struggles that are going on in our society today, but 21st century America looks very different than 1950s America or 1850s America. There's, quote, progress when we think about those things. But you see how the scale shifts sociologically. So is there a different scale for 18th century America and then a different scale for 21st century America? Picture this. 
Imagine, student, that you go into your class. You just started the new semester, right? So imagine the first week of September, you go into your class, and the professor introduces himself to you, but he gives no syllabus, he gives no instructions, nothing. And then he actually even says, there are no classes until the end of the semester. Great news, right? Because I just need three credit hours. Are you with me, right? Until he says this. On December 14th, I want you to show up here at 8 a.m. and I will give you the final exam. And you're responsible for whatever information I ask you. We would look at that scenario and say, that's absolutely ludicrous. How can I pass a test that I, never even were, I was never even given instructions about? I was never even given information about. That's how ludicrous the good people go to heaven and bad people don't theory is. Is because you're basically saying that God is giving you the ultimate final exam on the day of judgment. But it was just left up to us to figure the whole thing out. To figure out what's on it and how we compare. And then what the grading scale is. Lastly, so I've showed... I've thrown out there that there's no consistent definition of what good is. There's no grading scale to determine where you stand. But here's another one. Everyone believes they're good. Have you thought about that? Except maybe Martin Scorsese, the famous movie director who remarked a couple of years ago in an interview that he pretty much knew he was going to hell. I mean, so unless you're Martin Scorsese, everybody generally thinks they're good. So if everybody generally thinks they're good, then I guess everybody just goes and this whole thing was just a wash, right? I want you to appeal to your logic this morning. There are so many things that we pass off in human society and our, in our culture today that, that are just pretty much accepted as truth claims and just enter into the f- common vernacular uh, and the social fabric of our society that we don't think about strategically at all. But if you'll just think about lo- these things logically, I want to appeal to your logic. You start seeing that there are significant holes in this argument. But not only do I want you to appeal to logic, number two, consider the scriptures. Consider the scriptures. Let me ask a question today, because more often than not, when people talk about, well, I just need to be good, and if I'm good enough, then God will let me into heaven one day, usually they'll start thinking about the commandments. Well, I just need to follow the Ten Commandments. So let's ask that question. What about keeping commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments first appear in Exodus chapter 20. And as a refresher, boys and girls, let's read through it. In Exodus chapter 20, this is what God says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, 
or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when you read verse 6, this is where it can be very tempting for us as human beings to think, God shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what God wants is for me to keep commandments. In order to keep commandments, that's going to make me right with God. Well, let's just go with that premise for a moment. Uh, Let's just go through some of the Ten Commandments. Do not have other gods before me. Let me ask you this. Let's do a test. You want to do a a morality test this morning and see how you will do before God and following the Ten Commandments? Well, Jesus says that the first and foremost commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Has every one of you in this room kept and followed that commandment perfectly since you have lived on planet Earth? I didn't think so. Let's move on. Verse 2. Number 2. Do not make an idol for yourself. If any of you are 18 or 19 and in a dating relationship, need I say more? Okay, number three. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Tell me you have never, ever used the Lord's name in vain. Tell me that you have never once used a profane word in all of your life. Um, Let's go on down to number five. Honor your father and mother. No, let's go to number six. Um, Do not murder. Finally, finally. I don't think there are any murderers in the room. If there are, we love you too. Um, But we can think pretty well of ourselves right now because we're thinking, well, none of us in the room has actually committed murder. We have never taken the life of another human being until you read Matthew 5 when Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder, and everyone who murders would be subject to judgment. But I tell you, if you have even been angry with your brother, you have committed murder against him in your heart. Dang it. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Well, Chris, number one, I've never been married. Or number two, you know what? I've been faithful to my wife for the last 10 years. Until you read Jesus in Matthew 5, who says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you have even had a hint of lust towards another woman, you have committed adultery already with her in your heart. Do you see where this is going? Every single one of us has broken the commands of God. And although some of us may keep the commandments better than our neighbor, there is none of us who keeps the commandments perfectly. So when asking the questions, what about the question, what about keeping commandments? There must be something more to verse six than meets the eye. Number two, let me show you this, considering the scriptures. What about keeping commandments? Here's the purpose of the commandments. The commandments were never given to us so that we would follow them perfectly in order to earn our favor with God. Instead, the commandments reveal our sin nature and show us that we cannot earn our way to God. The commandments reveal our sin nature and show us that we cannot earn our way to God. See, as a society, we like to think about following the Ten Commandments. The only problem is God didn't give Ten Commandments. 
As a matter of fact, when you read the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Levitical system and the Jewish structure, there were over 600 different commandments. How in the world do you keep up? You see, the commandments were given so that you would look at them and you would see all, all of them with, and go through them with a fine-toothed comb. And they would actually leave you in desperation because they would leave you saying, who in the world can fulfill this? No one can do this perfectly. That's why in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the New Testament writer, Paul, would write this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, here's what the law does. Here's what commandments do. Rather than giving us a list of things that we must perform in order to earn our favor to God, instead what it does is it, starts revealing our sin nature and showing us how we cannot doing it do it and it makes us cry out for someone to come give us relief. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Because at this point you could say, well, man, commandments are bad. Commandments make me feel guilty. Commandments show me that I can't earn favor with God. So therefore, the law must be sin itself. But Paul says, by no means, exclamation point. Yet if it had not been for the law, listen to this. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Here's what the New Testament starts showing us about the commandments. The commandments actually wake us up to sin because it starts showing us sin. Consider this. Remember that time when mom and dad left you at home all by yourself for the first time? Do you remember that? Rewind back with me. Freedom, right? They're finally out of the house. I'm the man of the house for the next two and a half hours or I'm the woman of the house, right? And mom and dad could tell you, look, Look, Johnny, you, you got complete domain over the house. Your, your microwaved pizza is in the freezer. Or you just got to put it in there for a few minutes. You have dinner. You know, don't invite any friends over, dot, dot, dot. And no matter what you do, do not open up that door and go into that room. Never cared about that room before. Never thought about it once or twice. Never given it a second glance. I think I need to go in that room. Why? Because once you found out you weren't supposed to go in the room, your sin nature is awakened to do that which you're not supposed to do. And this is what Paul says that the law does for us, is what the commandments do. Is it actually wakes us up to our sin nature because it actually reveals what's hidden in our heart. Once we as humans know what we're not supposed to do, it makes us want to do it all the more. This is what Paul says the purpose of the commandments are. The purpose of the commandments are to cause us to run towards God in desperation to say, give us relief. Not to go try to perform all 600 plus commandments and say, looky what I've done. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about the Ten Commandments. He says, I do not hesitate to say, that those who examined my life would not have seen any extraordinary sin. 
Yet as I looked upon myself, I saw outrageous sin against God. I was not like other boys, untruthful, dishonest, swearing, and so on. But of a sudden, I met Moses carrying the law, God's ten words. And as I read them, they all seemed to join in condemning me in the sight of the thrice holy Jehovah. Your neighbors and your roommates and your lab partners at school are all saying that good people go to heaven and God just wants me to obey and follow commandments. I would say this morning and join with Spurgeon and say when you start reading the commandments with an open heart and an honest mind, you start recognizing that instead of following the commandments to earn favor with God, the commandments condemn me. Because I have broken, I do break, and I will break again the commandments of God. The Bible also teaches the universal nature of sin. The universal nature of sin. If we're going to consider the scriptures, look at what the scripture says about good people. I want to start in the Psalms and I want to go through to the I want to look at wisdom literature, I want to look at the prophets, I want to look at the gospels, I want to look at the apostles. Therefore, we have a comprehensive view of what the scriptures uh status and view of mankind is. Here it is. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Well, maybe the psalmist was just having a bad day. Maybe someone just cut his chariot off in the middle of traffic, right? What about Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived? In Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 64.6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Chris, let's get out of the Old Testament. I mean, let's look at Jesus, because Jesus loved everybody, right? Jesus was just a great spiritual teacher. We love Jesus, right? What did Jesus say? Mark 10, verse 18. No one is good except God alone. Again, dang it, right? And then the apostles. And here's where Paul pretty much sums up the totality of the teaching of the scriptures regarding the moral state of mankind. Paul writes in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches the universal sin nature of mankind. The biblical conclusion is this. There are no good people. There are no good people. The biblical conclusion is that what most people claim to be a good person doesn't even exist. And that might work well for some existentialists, but for most of us who just live in reality, right? 
It should sober us. But even if you go back and now put together, considering the scriptures and then appealing to logic, let's put these things together. We actually don't believe that people are good. You see, we say all the time that good people go to heaven, bad people don't. And we will say things as a society like this. Mankind is generally basically good. There's just a little bit of, there are a few bad apples out there that just mess the whole thing up. The problem with that is we don't believe it. We don't believe it. Think about your behavior. And for this, I'm going to let John Stott talk to you for a moment. John Stott, in his classic work, Basic Christianity, says this. Much that we take for granted in a civilized society is based upon the assumption of human sin. In other words, it's based upon the assumption that mankind is not good. Nearly all legislation has grown up because human beings can't be trusted to settle their own disputes with justice and without self-interest. A promise isn't enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to lock and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected, and collected. Law and order are not enough. We need the police to enforce them. And all of this is due to man's sin. We cannot trust each other. We need protection against one another. It is a terrible indictment of human nature. Now, at this point, you're saying, but I'm a pretty good civ member of civilized society. You know, I help the poor. I, I, I would walk a senior adult lady across the street. Um, I even sold Girl Scout cookies when I was a teenager, right? I mean, you would think I'm a pretty good person. And, and here's the deal. Perhaps you are, societally speaking. And none of us is as bad as we could be. But the problem is, on Judgment Day, not a single one of us will be judged against the worst of society. We're going to be judged against the perfection of God Almighty. And when you start judging against the right criteria, which one of us could truly stand? Not a single one of us. So not only do we need to appeal to logic, not only do we need to consider the Scriptures, in the Scriptures now, let's listen to Jesus Let's listen to Jesus and show and, and find where he points us towards. If you'll turn to Matthew 5 or look at it up here on the screens. In verse 17, we find that Jesus has a higher standard than the Old Testament, a deeper standard than the Old Testament. Jesus has a deeper standard than even the Old Testament shows us. In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. These were the little uh, dots and crossing of the T's of the Hebrew alphabet. Not a single dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, here it is, you want to be good? You want to earn your way to God? Then listen to what Jesus says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Jesus is doing is here is he's using sarcastic and sarcasm and hyperbole. From a moral sense, there was no one, quote, better than the Pharisees. These guys were the ultimate teetotalers. You just think that you're legalistic. No, 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 no. 
The Pharisees were the kings of legalism. They're Pharisees. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds even the greatest person and the most moral person you know, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has a deeper standard than even the Old Testament. He, and he often told the religious elite that they weren't going to heaven while often telling bad people that they were going to heaven. I mean, just consider Matthew 12 for a moment. This is what Jesus had to say about the religious leaders. Think about the priests and the cardinals. Think about the, the elders and the pastors, right? So we, we look at those people and we say, man, those guys are the holy people walking on earth, right? But in Jesus' day, when he's talking to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders, here's some of the words he has for them in verse 33 of chapter 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now you can go on. You go on down uh, to Matthew 23, and you start recognizing that Jesus didn't actually have a cordial relationship with the religious leaders of his day. Look at what he says in chapter 23, particularly starting in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yours. Boy, Jesus just tells it like it is, right? You guys just think that Donald Trump tells it like it is, right? No, Jesus really just tells it like it is. This should sober us. These people were the most moral, cleanest, righteous people around. And he calls them children of hell. So you see, by our standards of good people and bad people, Jesus would often say that the religious elite weren't going to heaven, weren't a part of the kingdom of heaven, but then he would look at like the lowliest of society, what you and I would consider bad people, and he would tell them that they were. For example, in John chapter 8, it's the account of the adulterous woman. And all of the religious leaders were there to stone her and kill her. And then after he indicts them and gets them out of the way, he looks at the woman and says, who's left to condemn you, child? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Get up. And leave this life of sin. But probably one of my favorite instances is Luke chapter 23. While on the cross with two thieves, two criminals on both sides of him. Look at this account with me. In Luke 23, beginning in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
What good works did this guy do in order to earn that favor? He's on the cross. He's being given the death penalty. And he turns and through eyes of faith announces Jesus as who he is from a broken and contrite heart and Jesus gives him salvation. Here's Jesus' conclusion. Because when you look at the deeper standard that he has and then often telling the religious elite they weren't going while telling very bad people that they were, here's his conclusion. Good people don't go to heaven. Perfect people go to heaven. Perfect people go to heaven. Remember he told the the crowd that unless their righteousness would surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, that they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, let me show you one more. Are you enjoying Bible drill this morning? Let me show you one more. In verse 48 of chapter 5 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, after he contrasts what the Old Testament says and and the deeper places he's really calling them to with the matters of the heart, here's how Jesus sums this all up. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. You see, Jesus' standard is not for you to be a good person, The standard of God for you is to be a perfect person. And unless you are a perfect person, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is straight from the Messiah's mouth. You see, this is all about comparing ourselves to the right standard. You see, we do real well because we compare ourselves to our fellow man. But on judgment day, God's only going to compare us to the perfection of himself. My friend Steve Lutz gives a great illustration of this. Uh, He illustrates it by talking about the Grand Canyon. And and consider for a moment that you and I, along with an Olympic gold medalist high jumper, were standing on one side of the Grand Canyon, and our goal was to jump to the other side. And, And consider the fact that I would go first, and I would just make it just a little way because, number one, I'm white and I can't jump, right? Number two, you go, and because you have just a little bit more style and skill than I have, you might make it out just a little bit further than me, but you also fall to your demise. But then the Olympic gold medalist comes out, and he makes it further than both you and I, but we all meet each other at the bottom of the canyon in the river, and it doesn't, it doesn't end well, folks. This is the picture, morally speaking, of mankind trying to reach and earn favor with God. Sure, there are some of us who may be more polished than others. There are some of us who uh, can be a little more legalistic and we can even follow commandments better than others. But at the end of the day, what we need, we don't need to jump to the other side because none of us could stand. Not a single one of us can make it. If we want to make it across the Grand Canyon, then some architectural engineering marvel has got to take place. And there's got to be a bridge built across that canyon in order for us to cross it. And that is the chasm between God and man. We don't need to jump. We don't need to try and do our best and earn favor with God. We need a bridge. We need to be able to get to the other side by someone else's merit and someone else's good works. So listen to Jesus. Lastly, as a result of all this, trust the alternative. Trust the alternative. 
You see, the good people go to heaven, bad people don't theory just doesn't hold up to logic. It doesn't hold up against the scriptures. And it's very different from what Jesus taught. And so there must be an alternative. So I want to call you to trust the alternative. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. This is why the good news of Jesus is good news. You see, if, if all of us were supposed to just be good enough and on our own merit we could stand before God and He would put our good works on the scales of justice and there was something that we could do to tip the scales in our favor, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is not good news. It's just one set of news among many on earth. But if you're on this side of the Grand Canyon and there is literally no way to gulf that chasm, And if you were to jump and you were to leap by your good works and that would only get you 10 feet at best. Then the good news of the gospel is really good news. Because Jesus says, I don't need to be good. Jesus says, I need to be perfect. Now, I want to show you something. Would you go to Hebrews chapter 10 with me? Is this fun? This is fun. Say amen. Amen. All right. This is good. Get to Hebrews 10. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, that pretty much disqualifies every single one of us. So, Chris, we're hopeless. We're lost. We're desperate. What gives? Look at Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. You see, the law, the commandments, they're pointing towards something else. The law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So following commandments will never make you perfect, the scripture says. But look at verse 14. Talking about Jesus. For by a single offering, meaning the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where is your hope for being perfect? It's in the alternative. It's in the gospel. It's in the gospel. And if you will allow me just four or five minutes, I want to walk through the Old Testament to the New and just proclaim to you this gospel. You see, here's really what we need to believe today. It's not the moralistic therapeutic deism that is so held to with tight fists in society. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what gives explanation of our world. It's what gives resolution and hope to our world. It's what will ultimately save your soul and make you right with God. Here's the picture. The Bible tells us that God created us ultimately to glorify Him. He created us to worship Him, the Bible says. But as a result of our sin, all of us sinned, And we fall short of the glory of God. So in other words, we can't even fulfill the very purpose for which God created us. We cannot glorify Him because of our sin. And also as a result of our sin, the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the payment and the wages of that sin is death or eternal separation from God. In other words, spending eternity in hell apart from God and not in heaven with Him. 
The scriptures also tell us, as we looked at in Isaiah 64, 6, that there is absolutely nothing you can do to merit heaven. There is nothing you can do to merit salvation. There is not enough good works for you to do. But, but, the biggest theological word in the, in the Bible, but in his love and his care and concern and sovereign will, the Father sent his only son Jesus to make sinful man right with a holy God. We read that in John 3, 16. And then Jesus lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live. And then he died the cruel punishing death so that you don't have to. And then after dying, after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. So now, because he has new life free from sin, you also can have new life free from sin. And you can be perfect in God's eyes, just as Jesus himself is perfect. And lastly, Jesus is the only way for mankind to be in heaven. Wait a minute. That's bigoted. That's closed-minded, and that's not even intellectually fair, is it? Wait a minute. That's not fair? Are we really? I want you to think about this. And I mean this very compassionately. Are we, as sinful humans who have been alienated by our sin before a holy God, are we really ready to look our Creator in the eye and say, in the midst of our sinful desperation, how could you only offer me one way out? We should be humbly in tears and brokenness saying, thank you, almighty God, for delivering me and offering any way out. But yet man in his arrogance would play on the mercy of God and say, how could you only offer one way that's so bigoted? Now come back with me to logic. Let's come back where we started. The Jesus is the only way. The gospel as the only alternative method is really the only fair way. Here's why. Three reasons. Number one, everybody is welcome. You see, when we start thinking about one way, we say this is not fair I mean, what about this group in the Middle East? What about this group in East Asia? What about this group in America? Like, why can't there be many different ways? I mean, why can't there be many different definitions of good? Well, here, everybody is welcome. Jesus isn't ostracizing anywhere, anybody. He's opening the doors to every tongue, tribe, nation, people group on planet Earth, every language, every ethnicity. Everybody is welcome in the alternative way. Number two, everybody gets in the same way. Here's what's awesome. Is that when we stand before the throne room of God, those of us who have come through faith in Jesus Christ, nobody is going to be able to sit around in the throne room and say, hey, how'd you get in? Well, you know, I helped five old ladies across the street. How'd you get in? Well, I gave a million dollars to Mother Teresa's charity in, 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 in India. Well, how'd you get in? Well, you know what? I, I can't really explain it. I just, I'm just here, right? You see, the Bible says that this is apart and separated from boasting. None of us have boasts. And so here it's so fair because when we sit around the throne room of God and we start talking about how Jesus, how God got us there, we're all going to say it wasn't me, man. It was all Jesus. You too, it was all Jesus for me too. We all get in the same way. It's on him and it's not on us. 
Number three. Number three. This is the only fair way because everybody can meet the requirement. Take the guy who just traverses the world and is building water wells in Africa. He's, he's providing new homes in India. He's rescuing sex slaves in China. And he's going across the earth just doing all of these good works. What about the person who's sitting in a nursing home today and can't do all that? Everybody can meet the requirement of faith and repentance. And so for those of us in our intellectual arrogance who want to say that this is bigoted and closed-minded and unfair, it's actually when you start thinking logically about it, it's the only fair way. So what do we do with this this morning? I want to call you to trust the alternative. I want to call you to believe the gospel. And some of you need to hear this today because legalism has such a strong hold on your life that legalism has convinced you that you can keep doing the best things to earn favor with God. And you live in this constant state of oppression. Even those of you who have professed faith in Jesus, you've professed faith and, and, and you say that you're free, but you still live like you're shackled in chains. And you need to be freed today to trust the alternative and believe the gospel because it's never going to be you being good enough. There are others of you in this room who need to relinquish the arrogance of thinking that somehow you know better than God and that you can earn your way. And to you, here's what I would tell you. One, repent from your sins. The Bible tells us in Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. It means acknowledging that you're a sinner. It means turning away from your sin and walking a different way. But then through faith, believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says this, ladies and gentlemen. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Nothing about commandments there. Repent and believe. That's the Christian gospel. If you believe anything externally from that, it's not the alternative. It's actually the norm. And you have to believe the alternative to get to heaven. So society says good people go to heaven, bad people don't. Appealing to your logic, considering the scriptures, listening to Jesus. Will you now trust the alternative? Will you believe in the gospel? I want to pray for you. And I'm going to give you some instructions. And we're going to sing in celebration. Father, thank you today for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But in you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. And Father, I come this morning before all these people and I just confess publicly that I am not a good person. I'm not good. I know my heart. I know my thoughts. 
I know my selfishness, my sin. My only hope, and it just brings joy to my heart this morning, is that in not being a good person through faith and repentance, you now call me perfect through Jesus. And Father, that is so much more hopeful than anything good I can do. Father, today I pray that this truth would liberate us. Father, free us from our arrogance. Free us from our striving. Free us from our trying. And I pray that you would bring every one of us to the place of surrender. And you would give us the gift of repentance and faith. Father, we just boast in the work and person of Jesus today. And it's for his sake and your glory we pray these things. Amen.